Welcome to Understanding Russia, a student-led podcast from Belgorod State University. I'm your host, Ian, and along with the staff and students at Belgorod State University, I have taken it on myself to try to explain the role played by literature in Russian society and whether it has any relevance in the digital age. A lot is made of Russian literature, both in Russia and abroad. The Soviet Union put an emphasis on education, in particular on literacy. British Prime Minister Robert Peel created the first European system of general education in the 1840s. When asked why, he replied that, in order for an expanded electorate to understand the government's point of view, they must be able to read it for themselves. The Soviet leaders may have understood this very well, as you would expect of any Marxists, but they had a more pressing need to industrialise that was foremost in their minds. When non-political reading materials were produced, eventually they started to publish work by contemporary writers that adhered to the shifting mores of the 20s and 30s, and also selected pre-revolutionary works either too well known to suppress or that were ideologically sound. As contemporary writers became less cooperative, the monolithic state publishing service started to rely on the classics more and more. It helped that late 19th century writers were largely preoccupied with social justice and the pernicious schemes of the aristocracy. This was all grist to the socialist mill. In effect, if you were a newly minted literate Soviet citizen, you might demonstrate this by extolling on a literary subject, which feels like a step up from the marketplace stories you exchange in your pre-literate days. Conversely, the new regime's belief that there was a wrong way to think made creating new work a little too risky. However clever the new system of education had allowed you to become, demonstrate your intellectual ability with too much sophistication, and you may come across as a mite too bourgeois and selfish for the taste of the state censor. Socialism is collective you see, comrade, and utilitarian. Selfish pleasures and elitist tendencies are history, and if you don't also want to be history, you must align yourself with the future. The effect of this was to ossify literary culture, and most Soviet literature is unreadable as a result. There were two places where restrictions cause an increase in creativity, however. One was in poetry, which is not easily translated, and the other was in science fiction, which was the only Russian literary genre that had a global impact during the Soviet period. Soviet filmmakers were very very much part of this flourishing. The most popular Soviet films were generally stories of ordinary people doing extraordinary things, or comedies poking light fun at the well-intentioned incompetence of authority and the recursive nature of Soviet life. With almost no new honest literature being written in the Soviet period, approved writers were read and reread. At school, young minds were educated reading 19th century stalwarts like Tolstoy, Dostoevsky and Gogol. This stultifying atmosphere was embodied in the endless navel-gazing engaged in by literary academics, as it became increasingly difficult to say anything novel about century-old novels. This habit continues into the present. Literature feels like history here. Another more general problem is that reading a book has become a niche hobby. Russians still read more books than I have seen read elsewhere. My wife is still an enthusiast and buys a physical book on a monthly basis, most of which she lends on to her friends. And there are still quite a few bookshops dotted around the city. In those stores, you will find many oxymoronic self-help titles, fantasy novels aimed at teenage girls, and tie-ins to popular TV shows. Inevitably, these bookstores are turning into gift shops catering for birthdays, mainly. On the subject of literature, I am not quite the Philistine I sometimes make myself out to be. As a teenager and throughout my university studies, I lived in the library as much as I was able. I read widely and voraciously. The older the tome, the more I enjoyed it. But enough about me. Here are three of my young colleagues to talk about the subject of literature. I'll introduce you to Tony, and he has a voice you've never heard because he works in the background doing all the things I cannot do, and Nastia, whose voice is all over this podcast as she's both interviewer and voiceover artist, and her friend Polina, who is a former student of mine and I am told is a literature enthusiast. You're listening to Understanding Russia.
Hello, everyone. Hi. Hello. I don't know what we should start with regarding literature, because this topic is quite unfamiliar to me, I would say. But I, I'm saying it with shame, because these days I don't read much. I don't know if it's relatable to you, too. The last thing I've read was a Japanese manga. Well, it's a form of a comic. Maybe our viewers, our listeners, listeners, yeah. listeners yeah. I think I know. Are familiar with it. Yeah. And many Russian people, I guess, yeah. are familiar with anime and manga in general. And yeah, it was, by the way, a beautiful piece of literature, I even would say, because it affected me a lot. Polina yeah. has heard me talking about this. It's called Chainsaw Man. But I don't know if you can call it literature. I'm sure that many middle-aged people would say, oh, it's just a comic and it's a bunch of pictures with bubbles of text. And they would be kind of right. But it's got text. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, can we call right. it literature? Okay, let's start with that. So would you say that manga is a form of literature? I would say yes, especially nowadays when we have so many mangas available and we can read it. And I think everything that contains some kind of text can be called literature. Mm -hmm. So, And how do we differentiate? So, for example, a manga can be more meaningful than some kind of a book. Yeah, and, and the book, a usual book, can have pictures too, so... Yes. What would you say, Tony? Oh, you know, I think manga is great, but uh, is it literature really? Because, you know, well, you can't think that it's literature, but I think it also is is an art, like, you In know, like, like just a picture. Or, mm -hmm. But of course it's meaningful and of course it affects people and uh, it affects culture, like Japanese. And I think it's definitely art, but I don't know if it's literature. So. Yeah. It well, can be both. Yeah, well, it's, yeah, yeah, it's a mix. Yeah, it, it's probably a mix of art, the kind of art that is on the galleries, in the, yeah, is in yeah. the galleries, and it's a mix of text and art in that way. Yeah. So what have you read recently? <laughs> By the way, I'm also re-reading my favorite manga. And, <laughs> but I also recently bought a book. It's called The Gold Flinch, I think, by Donna Tartt. And I really like this author and this book is pretty much praised all over the world. And so I'm, I'm excited to read it. Mm -hmm. And what genre is it? I mean, like, is it a detective or uh, you know, a fantasy story? It's a little bit of a detective story, drama and love story even. Well, I know I read the last book maybe a year ago and it was Dostoevsky because I like them. And, uh, you know, uh, Dostoevsky is, <sighs> I can't say fun, but uh, it definitely uh, great. And, uh, you know, it's sometimes it can lead you to depression. <laughs> so, <laughs> And uh, this feeling are sometimes very useful for you because uh, they just make you think about the life and all the problems. And yeah, he's not fun, but he makes you think. So yeah, yeah, yeah that's it, the important it's, thing. It's very important. So yeah, we can find lots of things that are fun outside of literature, definitely. But Dostoevsky and such are really important and relevant because I think we indulge ourselves too much sometimes. So we have fun, we have parties, we get, you know, drunk and stuff and there's little time to actually train and evolve your mind. So what what exactly have you read by him? Oh, uh, I think it's called uh, White Nights and it's a um, love story mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's kind of sad love story so... I'm not surprised. It's just you know, yeah. 
have you read it, Polina? No, I I read a lot of Dostoevsky, but I haven't read it because I was interested in Dostoevsky when I was in high school. But now I I had enough, so to say. <laughs> <laughs> I was afraid that you'd say like I'm I'm grow I'm over him. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's not something you get over with because it's Dostoevsky. Yeah, he's yeah. he's praised all over too. I acknowledge his achievements, but I'm not interested in his mindset, so to say. Right yeah. now, yeah. yeah. And would you say that a lot of our youth are interested in Dostoevsky right now and authors similar to him, you could say? It depends, I guess. You know, some people like him, like him some people don't. And, you know, I think in general, you uh, don't like this uh, rough stuff in his books because it's really hard and sad. And, uh, you know, I don't think that is uh, good stuff for like young psychic state, mental state. So mm-hmm. maybe like manga and comics are better for young people <laughs> Thank than you. Dostoevsky. Yeah. I'm 10 so. years old mentally. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I've heard people say sometimes that he's like hard to read. Would you say that's true? I don't think so. So for me, he wasn't that hard to read. I was even immersed in his books in general. I don't think that I understood what he was talking about. Mm, maybe you were too young. Yeah, so I was interested because of literature classes that I had. But I even now, if I reread something, I don't think that I'll completely understand. Who's in your opinion, is quite hard to read? <laughs> Gogol. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, Gogol is yeah, universally known too. Tolstoy, they say Tolstoy yeah, yeah, is hard yeah. to read. Really? Well, okay, we yeah, have you a know. debate. <laughs> okay, you say there are a lot of descriptions in his books and oh, it's so boring. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, sometimes you can skip it. <laughs> yeah, but you know, maybe yeah, the, I... The infamous description of a dupe, what's, what's <laughs> yeah, dupe yeah, called yeah. in English? Know. Well, it, it's oak. a tree. Yeah. An oak. Yeah, yeah, probably. And yeah, at some point in War and Peace, <laughs> he was talking about an oak <laughs> for pages and pages. Yeah, but yeah, you could skip it, actually. But you could miss some of the... Yeah. I have anything. When I read the book, I should read it from the beginning to the end. And I cannot like uh, say to other people that I've read this book because mm-hmm. I... Yeah, yeah. I understand mm-hmm. you. You're listening to Understanding Russia. And by the way, don't you think that it's harder for us to read in general? Mm-hmm. Because we have these gizmos, telephones, mm-hmm. and it affects us and our mental capacity a lot. Yeah, that's one of the things that me and Mrs. Kichigina talked about too, because I know so many people say that we're a generation that's affected by mobile stuff and the computer and the internet stuff so much that we have a hard time concentrating on a book. And I would say I can relate to that. I don't have ADHD like many people, but I do have a hard time concentrating on a book for like even 10 minutes sometimes. But if a book, like you say, I, I get immersed in the book. Last time it happened was with Gide Maupassant's Bellamy. Yeah, I told you about that too, probably, because at that time I was so concerned about not having the attention span to read a book. And we discussed this book in a French class and I decided to read it like in its Russian translation. And I was so immersed. I was so, <laughs> you know, captivated, captivated, yes, by this book. I've read it like in three days and it's 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 not like war and peace of course (laughs) (laughs) but it it wasn't small like it wasn't short it was a novel i don't even know why it was so captivating to read because it was like written in the 19th century in the 18th century you know time doesn't matter i guess um but you know they say that people have had like a slower rhythm of life back then 
So their writing is slower paced too or something. But yeah, when it's a great piece of literature, maybe it does not matter. It's eternal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, if it's genius, if it's a masterpiece, then it is eternal. Yeah, I agree. And yeah, so maybe it's about the the stuff that we want to read. Then we have the attention span for it. What would you say? What What was the last time you would you were really bored by the book? <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to say. <laughs> oh, you're so smart, Hugo. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Well, yeah, sorry, I'm so <laughs> stupid and immature. <laughs> no, 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 no. I think Mr. Hyde and uh, Dr. Jekyll, mm-hmm. it was kind of boring. I don't know why it's called masterpiece, to be honest, because, well, yeah, it's like great for some, I don't know, psychoanalysis of metals of these characters. But in general, it was quite, I would say, dingy, maybe, and uh, gloomy. And yeah, I don't know, it's not really fun. And uh, I had to force myself to read it. And yeah, did you finish it? Yeah, I finished it, but I didn't enjoy it. Yeah, heard about it it's about the good and the bad yeah, person yeah. yeah it gets divided and many american pieces of art were inspired by this i remember an episode of tom and jerry <laughs> that's <laughs> inspired great by mr jacko and dr hyde i'm sorry if i get the title wrong mr jacko was you know jerry was divided yeah, yeah. into two people yeah that's what i remembered i actually can reference a lot of pieces of literature because of tom and jerry it's <laughs> oh, a great cartoon yeah i like i watched several seasons of tom and jerry but It's not about Tom and Jerry, but it did get inspired by a lot of things. If you watch a lot of it, you get the references. Yeah. I have the same thing, but with Smisharuki. <laughs> yeah. They really inspire me to read more because I want to understand every single intertextual or yeah, reference that they contain. Finally enough, our podcast already mentioned Smisharuki in some other episode about etiquette. And it was, you know, Smisharuki did a series about etiquette. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it was cut out from the episode, but Smishariki is a great masterpiece. No, it's, it's too <laughs> example. Too. Please watch one episode of Smishariki or Kikoriki, is it called? Yeah. In it's on Netflix. Did you know it it's has on translation, Netflix? Yeah. It has translation. It has an English overdub and they have funny names for each character. Well, some names are not fun. Like some characters are just called what they are, like a bear. <laughs> you know, I don't remember. But some of them are actually like have smart names. Yeah. Okay. Enough about <laughs> Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. books. <laughs> Do you consider Pushkin that we talk a lot in this episode a genius? And if you do, and if you don't, why or why not? I consider him a genius, but like it's more of my personal attitude to to his works. I really enjoy his poetry because it's very light and at the same time you can find meaning under his lines and I don't know I'm really fascinated by his personality and his influence and as we all know he gave us the basics of Russian language yeah, yeah. language yeah we mentioned that too so would you consider him a genius well- He's a genius, but, you know, when I was a child, I was, like, inspired by him. But right now it's kind of not childish, but too easy for me, I guess, uh, in in terms of, I don't know, thinking and all this stuff. But, of mm-hmm. course, he's genius and he affected on Russian culture at all. And uh, his influence is so great. And, uh, of course, we should, uh, like, praise him. And uh, we do it in mm-hmm. Russia. Yeah. But uh, as for his poetry, yes, it's great, but I wouldn't call it masterpiece. 
Mm-hmm. It's just great poetry. Mm-hmm. Well, we do praise him. Maybe we overpraise him sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, it's also a topic for a conversation. Have you read Evgeny Onegin? Yes, because when you read it, you read it very easily. But when you pay attention to it, you find so many references. So he was uh, writing it for eight years and it shows. So you can see the amount of work that he put there. He's not the easiest author. One of them probably, but when you actually decide to... <laughs> dive in yeah, dive yeah. in yes there is so many things to learn yes there's there was a lot of work put into it we do consider him simple right so he's easy to read easy to understand but that's also a sign of a genius yeah, yeah he wrote for for everyone mm-hmm. that's yeah I think that's uh, why we can call him a genius. We could write a sophisticated novel about hardships of a student, yeah. <laughs> for example, and we would get caught up in our thoughts so hard that people wouldn't understand us at all. But if you can get your message across simply, yeah, it takes one to do that. It takes good author to do that. Yeah. I had a uh, I had a topic to discuss, but I forgot it already. <laughs> okay, Tony, well, would you? Do you think that um, reading at school and reading right now when we are grown up are different? Because, you know, when I was at school, I read a lot of this classic literature and I didn't understand the thing because I just didn't feel it, I guess. And mm-hmm. uh, You were forced to do yes, that. Yes, yeah. yes. I thought it was so boring. But right now when I, was, when I reread it... Uh, I'm just like, wow, that's a masterpiece. How did mm-hmm. I just skip it? What was the piece of literature that you read? That Well, for example, Crime book? and Punishment from by Dostoevsky. Mm-hmm. That was like uh, a revelation for me, like uh, the mental state of Raskolnikov. It should be in all the books uh, for psychologists because it's really a masterpiece. When I was at school, I thought, oh my God, this guy's suffering. Eh, you know, boring. <laughs> yeah, whatever. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have better stuff to do. <laughs> You're listening to Understanding Russia. And I'm glad that Crime and Punishment gets the recognition it deserves. Definitely. It's so recognizable and, and it's so high valued, even outside of Russia, that it's amazing that people, you know, actually take time to read it and appreciate it, even though they're not Russian. Because we're, we can be biased when it comes to mm-hmm. Russian literature, you know, because we're Russian. We know a lot about our literature, but other people can understand the genius of Dostoevsky again. Sorry, I'm saying genius and masterpiece a lot. Um, yeah. It's fascinating. Do you have these books when you know when you was when you were a child you considered them like very boring and not right now you think them going back to your previous question mm-hmm. I've had a little bit different experience when it came to school literature our school well in the nose it was quite liberating <laughs> to study <laughs> in and if you wanted to skip some mm-hmm. <laughs> you could yeah. oh. and uh, I I can admit I confess I didn't read much even at school even when I was forced to and I can not proudly say that I didn't even read Evgeny Onegin fully I read some pieces of it I should I know I should I want to you Shouldn't. No, no, yeah. It's no, just... I like I want to because I feel the need to know mm. and to learn. So yeah, I didn't read much uh, at school. But when we studied, for example, Andreev, Andreev, people don't talk much about Andreev, and we actually had him in our school program, and we like almost skipped him. Like we didn't discuss much, but. At school, I read pieces that were interesting to me. And I read Andreev. And he's, oh my God, I think I can compare him to Edgar Allan Poe. He wrote some horrifying stuff. I It was the 
first and only time I was genuinely scared when I was reading a book, even though I, I knew that I was reading a book. I read Ritya Vasilya Fiviskova, I think. I don't remember the exact title. Um, it was about a priest in a Orthodox church, in an Orthodox church, and his life in general, his wife, his children. And oh my God, there were deaths, there were horrors, there were, you know, delusions. I was re interested, but I was, yeah. So if I wanted to read something, I did. And I unfortunately haven't revisited any of the stuff that I read in school. So, Polina, what, what's your experience? I decided to take um, an exam for literature when I was in high school, mostly because I felt the need to read more. So that's why I forced myself to go through the list. And um, I don't think that I enjoyed much when I was reading now. I'm really grateful to myself and to this list, so I know what it is about. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I will reread it, but I probably should because you cannot just read it when you're 17 mm -hmm. and just leave it. Yeah. Because you probably didn't understand what it is about. Probably. Well, yeah, even if you did understand, you can get multiple messages yes. after revisiting the books. And I think good books should be revisited like once in yeah. a while. And I had a similar experience with exams. What I mean is I wanted to know more about the history of Russia. That's why I took the history exam. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And I knew that I wasn't interested in social studies. Many people took the social studies exam in my year. All of them wanted to be lawyers oh, for some yeah. reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, because it's it's an easy exam, people say, but it's it would be hard for me. I don't know. <laughs> Cut that out. <laughs> I thought that there's no better way to motivate yourself than to study for an exam. And yeah, it's quite a good idea because even though you were kind of forced to read the books, it's still nice for trivia, at least for trivia. And you still could get some life lessons you didn't even notice at the time. So maybe some books formed you as a person, but you just didn't acknowledge it. By the way, what exams did you pass at school? I didn't have a <laughs> I was in college, so... Oh, I see. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Would you say that Russia is a reading nation, that we read and we have the desire to read, at least among your acquaintances and friends? I should probably say yes, because most of my acquaintances, they read and they are not forced to read. Of course, they don't read such things as Dostoevsky, but sometimes they do. I don't know. Still, they have this desire. And I think books in general are now popularized mm -hmm. uh, and... Yeah. Uh, So it's it's, it's kind of trendy. It's yeah. kind of trendy to read books now, and it's a great trend. You know, people get annoyed at trends like eating healthy, meditating, <laughs> reading books, but, but it's, yeah, it's a good thing. Yeah, yes. yeah. <laughs> trendy things like these make me happy because in the 90s, my parents considered drinking a trend. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, everyone was drinking and getting high. My dad says he's quite proud of the now generation. We have good things going for us, even when we're forced to read, even if we do things that are trendy it's still good for us and okay what would you say what's your experience with people reading well yeah i think in russia it's everywhere i guess because every person that i know i think uh, they are reading something right now and uh, well of course i haven't been in in other countries but i would say that russia is uh, far more sophisticated in oh. this uh, topic and uh, it's a really great thing but i don't think that you have to be forced to read it should be your own way your own desire and when you need something to think about it or to find some knowledge about something that's uh, the moment when you realize that uh, the books are 
really great for you and they can you know affect you in some different ways they can touch your soul even of course it's your own wish not just order for someone yeah i often feel guilty for not reading but yeah i <laughs> i rationalize it by thinking if i have the need to read then i will if i don't read now then it's just not the time right now because well i have lots of time to spare in my future life and hopefully i will read more i will get many life lessons from it you're listening to understanding russia And on to the interview. Our interviewer, Nastia, sat down with Victoria Kichigina, who teaches Russian literature at our university. And she was there to talk about our theme for this show, something Nastia loves very much. In the interview, they talk about a couple of things that require an explanation to someone not steeped in Russian literature and history. Nastia mentions that the national bard, Pushkin, is a Decemberist. The Decemberists were a group of military officers and intellectuals who had experienced life in Europe and sought to push liberal reforms, which they felt Tsar Alexander had wished for, but never enacted. Upon his death in December 1825, they became convinced that the man who eventually became Tsar Nicholas had usurped his older brother Constantine, who had been bypassed for his willingness to act on Alexander's liberalizing program. They staged a protest that involved into a standoff and thence a pitched battle, a series of sympathetic risings across the Russian Empire and ultimately to a lot of dead and exiled liberals. These men are a source of romantic drama in Russian literature to the present day. Victoria also mentions that Russia was a slave society until the mid-19th century. She's talking about the institution of serfdom. This was a type of medieval bonded labor that lasted for around 600 years in one form or another. Peter the Great outlawed personal slavery in 1723, meaning the sale of humans was banned throughout the empire. However, the system of serfdom relied on a person and the land they worked on being regarded as one economic entity. And as such, these could be owned by a landowner. The Tsar, being the chief owner of land in the 19th century, was also also in direct control, therefore, of a large part of the Russian population. The irony was that quite often the citizens of new territories annexed to the Russian Empire had more rights under imperial law than native Russians did. Unlike the brutal form of slavery endured by the enslaved Africans in the New World, Russian serfs had legal protections against the worst excesses of punishment. But this was more about Christian morality than any belief in the rights of man. Eventually, industrialization and the impossibility of victory against superior European adversaries meant that serfdom was economically unsustainable, and it was abandoned. It is estimated that, at one point, more than a third of everyone in Russia was a serf. Being a serf meant that your travel was restricted or banned outright. You needed permissions to marry, build a house, or farm land, and you had to submit to the whims of the landowner. The last serf was freed in Kalmykia in 1892, the process having been begun in Estland in 1816. As such, this was always in the back of the minds of Russian intellectuals in the 19th century. Right, enough of me, more of them. You're listening to Understanding Russia. I have heard that you write poetry. What is the source of your inspiration? I would say that poetry is a form of thought manifestation. I don't consider myself a poet, but I like to reveal things to myself. That's the interesting thing about writing poetry. When you put the lines together, the rhyme creates some kind of revelation. Every rhyme and every line is a revelation for me. When I start writing poetry, I don't know how it will end, and I don't know what kind of thought will appear in my mind. There is no doubt in my mind that you are a literary person. What are you reading at the moment? I am reading an amazing book by Alexander Mita. It's called Cinema Between heaven and hell. The book is about screenwriting, acting and making the audience to empathize with what they see on the screen. Alexander Mita is a very famous Soviet director who directed the movie Air Crew, starring Leonid Filatov. He knows what he's writing about, and I read it with great interest. 
Are you as interested in cinema and theater as you are in literature? Do these two art forms seem inseparable to you? Yes. For me, these are just different forms of artistic expression. I'm trying to put on plays myself. Oh, really? Where do you put on plays? That's how I conduct exams on the history of Russian literature and culture. Students pick a topic, stage it, and act it out. This year was the year of Dostoevsky, and we did a play called Once There Lived a Poor Young Knight, Dostoevsky Contemporary culture. We hope to do it again this autumn. We didn't put anything on last year because of COVID. This year before the last stage wove from wheat. Do you go to our theater in Belgorodsky? Yes, of course. I wouldn't say that I'm a fan of our local theater, but I have seen Uncle Vanya, The Cherry Orchard, Hamlet and The Idiot. I enjoyed this last play a lot. I'm not sure if they still perform it. It's time to get down to business and ask some basic questions. How can the average person distinguish good literature from bad literature? The same as with food. We can determine if the food is good or not by tasting it. If we are starving, we'll eat anything anyway. The aftertaste will tell us if the food was good or not. I think it's the same with literature. We can gobble up any text. Some texts are very easy to digest and sit well in the stomach, but it's all about the aftertaste. What's left afterwards? Is there anything that sticks in the mind? Will a character live in your memory for a long time? Will you read it, close the book and forget the story even though the plot seems exciting at the time. At the moment you were eager to know who the killer was. Was it the butler or the gardener? Sometimes people say they read books all the time, one book a day. Are they true book lovers or is it a pseudo-intellectual facade? Do you think it's worth making reading part of your everyday routine? It's hard for you as a student to choose books because you read out of necessity. It's required by your curriculum. The important things for you to remember right now include things like who the main characters are, where the action took place, who interacted with whom and under what circumstances, and how it all ended. Let me continue with my food analogy. It all comes down to mealtime. Let's take hot cuisine, for example. It's not only about giving pleasure, but also about personal growth and mental development. People, after all, are vertical oriented creatures. Hold on, what do you mean by that? Okay, look, animals move facing the ground. It's almost impossible for them to walk upright because of gravity. Man is like a tree, he is bipedal. However, walking on two legs is difficult, even from the point of view of physics. He must constantly make the effort to lift his feet off the ground, make sure he is not too cold, not too hot, and do a lot of other things. Why is that? Why are we so badly adapted to life on Earth? There may be different answers. I like to think that man is a cosmic being and to remember that his head is at the top of his body, not near to the earth. If we are trying to understand the connection between man and the heavens through literature, we'll be better off taking our time, reading only good literature that has stood the test of time, and asking ourselves why this particular book might be considered a classic. Russian classics have certainly stood the test of time. We all know the famous names Chekhov, Pushkin, and Dostoevsky. Did these authors or other Russian classical authors influence foreign literature of that time and modern literature in any way. Dramatically, Russian literature revealed to the Western European reader man as he was, his true nature. It began with Gogol. Western readers love Kafka, and they think that he was the first to portray man as a kind of insecure little creature with an existential abyss of loneliness. Actually, that was Gogol's discovery. He was the first to depict this in the overcoat and the nose. He wrote about the incredible sensation of a man who does not understand the meaning of existence. The horror of this eats him alive, but at the same time, 
time, he tries to achieve balance amidst this horror, awful nightmares and scattered sparks of the whole and find himself. Gogol did this 100 years before Kafka. French existentialism was born out of Russian literature, particularly from Dostoevsky. Also, we need to mention the death of Ivan Ilyich by Leo Dostoevsky. This novella is the pure existentialist work. It's a masterpiece. When a man dies, the process of dying leaves him alone to ponder about everyone around him, and he begins to realize that everything around him is a lie, and he doesn't know where the truth is. He wrote about it long before Camus and Sartre. You must be familiar with today's school literary curriculum. What do you think about it? I think we should have revised the school curriculum a long time ago. Nowadays, children read in a different manner, and it's not their fault. Teachers try to blame them for this. They call them internet addicts, underdeveloped or primitive beings, but times are changing. We are living in a different era, the digital age, and we should also look at literature with this in mind. Children now have an approach to read that's indifferent from ours. They don't comprehend the meaning of their sentence. They need to make great efforts just to understand it. There is a term for that in Russian, meaningful reading, which aims at making reading effective. It's hard for a more than 16 years old to understand what's going on in Dostoevsky's crime and punishment, for example. There are many more interesting things for a modern person that they can take from it. They teach a simple structure. War and Peace is on the literary curriculum. It seems to me that if you are getting to know the novels of Tolstoy, it's better to start with Anna Karenina. Teenagers can relate to the conflicts in the book. You're listening to Understanding Russia. I think Anna Karenina was a part of our literary curriculum. Anna Karenina is not a part of a literary curriculum. Maybe it's included in some extracurricular reading lists, just like the novel The Idiot, for example. The teacher chooses the literary works to include in these lists. Dead Souls by Gogol is impossible to read now. I have one daughter who graduated last year and another who is graduating this year. Neither could take it through Dead Souls. They just don't understand the language there. You have to read it with a dictionary open. Then again, Google wrote simpler works. I think that everything depends on the teacher and how the teacher sees the literature. It's impossible to present the literary curriculum in such a way that people love literature and they'll and will want to go on studying it. This is also possible to ruin even a simple and fascinating novel by a negative attitude. At school, the most important thing is the teacher's personality. If the teacher has a lively persona, the students will listen. Based on the book's content, I think it will be best includes Gogol's Mirgorod, You and Evenings on the Farm near Dikanka on the list. They are less cryptic for young people and can reveal some aspects of Gogol's style. Our current curriculum is extremely Soviet, as it was drafted by in Soviet times. At that time, it was considered necessary to demonstrate just how tough it was to live under the reign of the Tsars. Echoes of this propaganda remained in the school curriculum to this day. It seems to me that the patriotism can be taught in a fundamentally different Way. Patriotism is not only a problem in the contemporary school literary curricula, but it also pervades all aspects of the schooling agenda. We all understand how serious World War II is, known as the Great Patriotic War here. It impacted a whole generation, but we are so often and obsessively and intrusively reminded of it. You can't overfeed a person, else they will inevitably become nauseous. Patriotism is not exactly the kind of thing that is pushed hard during Victory Day commemorations. In 
ancient Russian literature is a great example of how the Russian people treated their native land. They treated the land as a completely sacred living substance. It is written that the city of Pskov lost its independence. It cried like a living being. The Novgorodians call their city the Great Sir Novgorod. It is a very different attitude than ours. I ask my students if they can project this attitude onto modern cities. Can you say the Great Sir Belgorod? Can you treat the city as if it were a living entity? It's difficult. It is this feeling that is called patriotism. It's something you can never leave behind because it's a part of you. It's your essence. It's something sacred, intimate, something you can't shout about. Big words mean nothing here. I remember someone told me to read The Red Love by Andreev. They say that you can experience the great patriotic war through this book. What is your opinion about such brutal and bloody stories? Should the books that show the madness of war be included in the school curriculum instead of brave soldiers' propaganda poems? How should we teach our kids about wars and other military actions? Well, I don't think Andreev is the right author for that purpose. He lays his feeling bare, and his writing is a bit hysterical. There is a lot of that in films right now. It's better not to exaggerate feelings and emotions. The most intimate feelings can be perceived with deft touches. We can simulate the love for the motherland that exists in every person who has that feeling that they have blood ties. But it's more appropriate to do it in a subtle way. Traumatizing them with depictions of the horrors of war is not the way to tell the kids about the war. You mentioned Soviet censorship when you talked about the school curriculum. A lot of people say that it made cinema flourish, but the converse view states that because of censorship we didn't see a lot of other great works. Censors say, oh, this character is an anarchist, or we can't portray an American who's not evil. In theater circles there is a consensus that Soviet playwrights are not up to the level of contemporary writers. What do you think is the reason for that? It's only natural. I think it is an objective process. The Russian Revolution of 1970 overthrew the imperial government and placed the Bolsheviks in power. People began building a society that hadn't existed anywhere else. The new government wanted to prove to the world that they were the best in everything. Just like the song goes, even in the field of belly, we are ahead of the whole planet. The victory of socialism is the cornerstone of our country. Literature in itself is an ideological form. It emerged when the state emerged. It is not folklore. It is exposed to state ideology. The state changes, the ideology changes along with it. Their ideology focused on creating an external enemy. There was a conflict between good and best within the country. We are the good guys. We can only try to be better. There is nothing bad here. All evil things are abroad. Of course, that's not interesting to the reader. It's quite primitive. It is a two-dimensional, politicized point of view. So you're saying that all literature is politicized. Is that true for classic literature too? We know that Pushkin was a Decembrist. Can literature be separated from politics? If we're talking about Russian classics before the Silver Age of Russian poetry, their priorities were different. Russian classic writers never tried to isolate themselves. On the contrary, they have always strived for versatility and unity. Dostoevsky gave a famous speech about Pushkin in 1990. In his address, he praised Pushkin as the beloved poet, a prophet, and the embodiment of Russian national ideas. He was able to reveal the Russian soul to everyone who understand its visceral nature. Dostoevsky may have been talking more about himself, because he was developing Pushkin's traditions. The nobility moved freely around the world. They were free to go wherever they wanted. Turgenev lived abroad in France and founded a Russian French literary society. Members of this club translated Russian literary works into French. Dostoevsky began, Dostoevsky began 
began his literary activity by translating Eugene Grande, Balzac's first printed work. He studied the novels of Balzac and Hugo. Turgenev studied in Germany. They all received a European education. Back then, Russia was a truly European country. There was no detachment in spiritual separation, only a desire to understand the phenomenon of the Russian soul. Dostoevsky tried to understand personalities not in isolation from one another, but looking at it within a broader context. That's why Dostoevsky's discoveries about the subconscious are still relevant today. Moreover, as Einstein said, Dostoevsky's novels led him to some revelation in physics. It all comes with unity and a sense of culture as a pure humane quality. There were no external enemies. There was no need to show how strong, scary, great and terrible we are. The focus was different. In the 19th century, Russian literature dealt with universal questions. Dostoevsky was concerned with man and God, man and Christ. Tolstoy wrote about man and conscience. Chekhov tackled the man and the norm. Chekhov's character said that no one knows the real truth. We all know what the deviation from the norm is, but what's the norm we do not know. There was no desire to show the, his power, but a desire to understand the meaning of human existence in general. Well, Chekhov is a topic for another discussion. There is also a form of his works that defines his relevance to this day. You're listening to Understanding Russia. His literary style is appealing to modern teenagers even now. It is easy to read. Many of his stories are quite short. No, that's not what I wanted to say. It's easy to read, of course. The stories are short, but you can't understand anything. You flip through the book and forget the characters, the plot. There is no expressed conflict. It is not clear what's going on. Chekhov is a unique playwright. He is now all over the world. No self-respecting theater would work without Chekhov's plays. The cherry Orchard, Uncle Vanya, or Three Sisters. He said, everything I wrote will be forgotten in a few years, but the past I paid will remain in literature for a long time. So what did he do? He was able to construct plots in a way that allowed the theater director, the actors on stage to make their contribution to the original text. There are a lot of pauses, a lot of voids into which the director can insert his interpretation and the actor can insert his understanding of the role. More than that, that's where Michael Chekhov and the entirety of American film culture came from. Well, yes, Mikhail Chekhov is famous among theatergoers, playwrights and actors, along with Stanislavski. I've just remembered a funny story my dad told me once. He used to go to theater school. He comes into a bookstore and says, I'd like to have the collected works in three volumes of Mikhail Chekhov. And the saleswoman sighs deeply and heavily and says, young man, first of all, it's Anton Pavlovich Chekhov, not Mikhail Chekhov. Secondly, there are not three volumes, but five. <laughs> it's amazing that his name is more famous abroad. But there is a name that is very well known in our country, but unknown in the countries of Europe, America or Great Britain. It is the name of Alexander Sergeyevich Pushkin, about whom we have already talked a little bit. Let's delve into that some more. Can you briefly tell our foreign listeners about Alexander Sergeyevich Pushkin? Why is he so important to Russian people? There is even a term, the mystery of Pushkin in cultural studies describing the phenomenon. However, there is no resolution on the subject. Scholars are still trying to understand why Pushkin is considered the greatest poet by many Russians. He's great! Ask people who wrote The Bronze Horseman or A House of Kolomna, and they wouldn't know the answer. Although the name of Pushkin is familiar to many, it's not clear what is behind the name. His name is a symbol of Russian literature, but it's not clear why. Pushkin is our everything. Yes, but what exactly? That's how I understand that Pushkin did for Russian literature. First of all, he transformed and modernized the Russian language. To native Russian speakers, now it's completely un 
unnoticeable because it was a long time ago. The Russian language in its modern form has very little of Pushkin left in it. I mean the spoken Russian language. Also, Pushkin reveals some astonishing secrets of Russian consciousness and Russian mentality. At the time of Peter the Great, when the nobility became a free social class, they didn't need to work for a living. Russian society was quite special. Well, if they wanted to, they worked, and if they didn't want to, they didn't. But then there were people who served them, the peasants. So it turns out that up to the middle of the 19th century we had a slave society, which was shameful when juxtaposed with enlightened Europe. But on the other hand, it helped to create this kind of brilliant literature, a unique culture of the 19th century. The nobility had free time, they could travel, think about the eternal. Everyone had three hundred Zaharovs, that is to say peasants, as Goncharov said in his novel Oblomov. Everyone had his own Oblomovka, which is the village where the infamous Oblomov lived. This meant you could lie back on the couch and write something. The gap between the nobility and the peasants was enormous. The peasants were the closed community. They would not let the nobility in, even though they fed them and they took care of them. The children of the nobility were often weaned on the milk of the peasant wet nurse. Peasants taught them how to read. Still, these were two different social classes. There were many attempts to create a new civil order, but to no avail. Peasants treated the nobility as a bunch of weirdos. Pushkin managed to find the point of contract when nobility and peasants were united. He found the point of humanity, where a man is just a man regardless of his social class. Pushkin was a well-rounded individual. He was not limited either by his European upbringing nor by his poetic bias. He viewed the world as a whole. He has never been abroad, although he had an incredible sense of European literature. He thought within a global context. I can talk about it for hours. As to Pushkin's significance for Russia, in my opinion, he was the point of contact of ordinary people, even bandits and the nobility. I am referring to Pugachev from The Captain's Daughter and the nobleman's son Grinov. Despite the seemingly complete impossibility of reconciliation, they remained friends. Why? Because they are honest people. The book's text line explained it. Guard your honor from a young age. This sense of honor is higher than any class distinction. That was Pushkin's discovery. I didn't know that he had never been abroad. I only knew that the French writer Prosper Mermet was a close friend of his. The tragedy of their friendship is that they never met in person. Did he write in French? Yes, he was fluent in French, even more fluent than in Russian. His thoughts were in French, although he had never been abroad. If he knew the peculiarities of Russian language so well, how could he speak French even better? No, he did not write any French novels or poems, only Tatiana's letter in the Eugene Onegin's opera. Pushkin said that it could only have been written in the language of love and passion. He wrote it in French and I write this to you, what more can be said, is just a bland translation of what Tatiana intended. Pushkin didn't consider the two cultures to be separate, there was no polarization. He understood that a girl of Tatiana's status could write about passion and love only in French. You're listening to Understanding Russia. When we were discussing the school curriculum, we talked about the internet. There is an opinion around that children don't read, they're becoming sillier and their attention span is shortening. Too many letters, as they say. Do you think they will be less educated? It definitely will have some effect. Take my son as an example. He is 24. He was born in 1997 on the rise of the cell phones and computers. And now he realizes that a written text is a sign of a certain gentility and that a well-read person who is capable of discussing literature is 
more valuable than a person who enjoys the simple pleasures that the modern culture offers. So how can we find a balance? How can we encourage kids to read? How do we show them that literature can be interesting? How do we divert the retention from the internet? Well, teachers, parents and teenagers need to find an internal balance. It can only exist in a healthy family and teaching environment. Children usually look up to their parents. If a child doesn't find what they're looking for, they'll go looking elsewhere. So love for literature depends on the family? It's hard to say. My kids don't read a lot. I can't say that parents' reading habits directly have an impact on their kids. A person is born with a certain set of characteristics and predilections. It seems that everyone has a certain predisposition. Some people are born to be scientists and others are born to be actors. It's not about our profession, but about the harmonious development of a person and the cultural integration. If a person has this inner balance, they will not try to self-destruct. As an example, I say that profanity unconsciously destroys a person. If a person grows up in a good family, they won't have a self-destructive problems. I think there is a correlation. It's almost impossible to find an internal balance on your own. Everyone needs an adult, a mentor, a role model. So there's no one teaching methodology for it. The only conclusion here is that a teacher should be a friend. Yes, a teacher should have a strong personality. Yeah, students often don't like the subject because of the teacher's attitude. Many people I know don't like chemistry for some reason. Chemistry is not my strong suit also because the teacher did not want to teach. She had probably burned out professionally. But when we had a biology teacher who loved his subject, we did learn to love biology. You will love the subject because you want the teacher to like you. They are children. Love is fuel for them. So if the teacher has a strong personality and loves their subject, the students will be happy. We are living in turbulent times. Literature is affected too. The crisis emerges on different levels. It's like a turning point. The end of one idea and the founding of another. It works in the opposite direction too. Kids' love motivates the teachers. We have a bit of a reading crisis among young people. They don't read much. Is there such a crisis? in contemporary literature? Can we say that today's writers are not up to the level of those classics? We are at the crossroads. That's why it seems like a crisis. Are there no new ways of expression? Why does such a degeneration of ideas happen? Because of the lack of content. There are only different forms. What is there to express? Don't we have the same pressing problems as the writers of that time? It's not about the problem, it's about how these problems arise and coincide. They have to originate from somewhere. Man has to evolve, he has to become better in every sense of the word. It's not clear what's better for us, because we are constantly shown only horrible things. Everything is inside out. It's difficult to raise our eyes to the sky and see the good. It only works on a nostalgic level. Pelevin conveys this feeling perfectly. I can consider Pelevin one of the most interesting modern writers. There is another thing. Now writing books and publishing them is a business. Writers in the 19th century were paid well. They received excellent royalties and could live on them. Everything depended more on the publisher than the reader. Now royalties are determined by reader demand, and the writer takes that into account and tries to indulge a large audience. And how could you read that? The plots are primitive, the ideas are primitive. Sales and marketing are gods now. I think money shouldn't play an important role in literature. There has to be some element of unselfishness here, of service to the written word.
Can we gain the same things out of other forms of art that we gain from literature? What do we gain from literature? (laughs) Good question. It gives us freedom of thought, critical thinking skills and new experiences. There is a saying that a good story is a story of the soul. Is that possible with YouTube videos and social media posts or does it require a professional touch? That depends on the soul. If you aspire to be somewhere greater, you should overcome your inertia. Let's go back to basics for a moment here. Sometimes it's hard to make yourself over overcome this resistance. Laying on the couch feels nicer. Technology makes our lives easier, that's for sure. We're all becoming oblomov, apathetic and sluggish, because it's easy now to meet our basic needs. Yes, we're not serfs anymore. It would seem that we must strive for more, but it's not working out. Must is too strong a word. Persons find their own meaning in life. Maybe they don't need literature. They know very clearly what they are living for. We should be happy for them if it's what they want. And one final question. What is your favorite Russian novel? Only one? You can name more if you like. No, I don't like to spread myself too thin. I was thinking about how to consolidate my reading experience. I guess my whole life blends together in Dostoevsky's novel The Brothers Karamazov. It's all there. I grew up with this novel mentally and professionally. It's probably why I can say that it's a book about everything. Everything Dostoevsky understood about human nature is there. Once Dostoevsky said, man is a mystery that needs to be unraveled. And if you spend your whole life unraveling it, don't say that you're wasted your time. I've studied that mystery because I want to be a human being. If you want to unravel the mystery, read the novel. I reckon everyone has their own mystery. Yes, everyone will unfold their inner universe in their own manner. Let's talk about foreign novels. Naturally, our tastes change over time. What is your favorite foreign novel right now? Oh, that's an easy choice. Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude. It's a universe in the book. He masterfully conveys the inner world of a person of another ethnicity. It's a book that you want to live with. Today we are talking about the aftertaste. This is it. A book that lives and blossoms inside of you after reading. Yes, and I have a question about underappreciated and underrated books in terms of nationality. There is Latin America. I wouldn't say this area's literature is particularly well-known all over the world, at least to us Russians. Are there perhaps other layers of culture that you would like to get acquainted with? Yes, there are. Well, I should probably familiarize myself with them. I can say which ones, because I'm not an expert on world's literature. There are some acknowledged masterpieces and novels that I personally find revolutionary, but it's different for everyone. There are books that we keep closer, the books that shape us. Is there a book that you've read and wondered why people don't talk about it more. There is such a novel, or rather, it's not even a novel, it's only 30 pages long. It's called A Novel in Nine Letters by Dostoevsky. A lot has been written about Dostoevsky. Philosophers wrote a lot, scholars of literature try to understand him, psychologists try to understand him because he is such a mysterious figure. But this novel, which Dostoevsky wrote as a young man, is a perfect mystery. In my opinion, it's a masterpiece, but no one has ever written any papers about it. Thank you very much. After this interview, I want want to go home and dive into a good book. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Understanding Russia. If you want to contact us, you can get in touch with us via our website at urpod.net, where you can find all our social media links, or via email, understandingrussia at gmail.com. We will be very happy to hear from you. You have been listening to Understanding Russia, a student-led podcast from Belgorod State University.